0: The History of Literature Podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. It is the middle of January and cold as hell here in the outskirts of crazy town. That's pretty cold. As Dante knew, the lowest circle of hell was full of traitors encased in ice. DC in a nutshell. Let's move on quickly as Dante and Virgil did too. Or maybe not so quickly. One more detail. You know why it's so cold in hell, in Dante's hell? Because the devil is flapping his wings, creating an icy cold wind. We have got to do that episode on the Inferno. And also the Purgatorio, which is underrated. Maybe the W.S. Merwin version. We'll dive into that soon. Okay, moving on. My son is reading King Lear, and I feel as good as I did when he was in first grade reading Calvin and Hobbes and laughing out loud. Back then, I knew he had a sense of humor, a grown-up sense of humor, one that he and I could share. That was the moment. I had sensed it before then, but right there in that restaurant, it was confirmed. And now, as he reads King Lear, blown away by it, I know he and I are going to be okay as grown-ups, too. Fellow grown-ups. Okay, so from hell to parenting heaven, I guess. A little bit of paradise, at least for me, Jack Wilson, right here on Earth. Okay, so today we're going to give some warmth. We started with icy winds in the cold January, but we're going to have some warmth. We're going to start with warmth and continue with one of the most powerful testaments to literature that I have ever read. I was overwhelmed by the responses to our last episode, the conversation with Brian Dorries about his Theater of War productions and his translation of Sophocles, Today, a listener weighs in on just what Sophocles and Theater of War and Brian Doris have meant to him. That will be our main course today. Please do stick around for the power of literature. You won't want to miss this. In some ways, I feel like our journey five years ago, we start over five years, I guess it is, We we asked, is literature dying? That was the question we began with. I don't know that we've answered that. Sometimes I still think that it is dying. Let's hear from a listener and revisit our inquiry. But first, for our appetizer, we have a treat. This is a new series we're going to run called, if we call it something, we could call it Margot's Boswell's Johnson. Our old friend, Margot Livesey, who's been on the show a number of times, a wonderful Scottish novelist, Scotland and America, American novelist too. She lives in Boston now, but she grew up in Scotland. She's a bit of both. I would like to claim her for our country, but I don't want to be all greedy about it. We'll take her as she is. It's like what Auden said about T.S. Eliot. Eliot, who had grown up in St. Louis and lived his adult life in London, and Auden, who had grown up in England and lived his adult life in New York. And they asked Auden, are you a British poet or an American poet? And he said, well, whatever T.S. Eliot is, I'm the opposite. So Margot, with her Scottish background, confessed to me at one point that she had never read Boswell's Life of Johnson, a great work by a great Scotsman and maybe my favorite book of all time. I know I've said that a few times. I have a few of them. I can't remember ever taking as much sheer joy in a bunch of, well, what is this, a biography? People call this the greatest biography of all time, and it might be, or the greatest biography ever written in English. It has a claim, and some say it's not really a biography at all. It's a portrait or a memoir. It gets some facts wrong. It's a string of scenes, and it's a little misshapen. The early life flies by. It doesn't really dig in. It doesn't soar until Boswell meets Johnson, which happened late in Johnson's life. Boswell was 22 when he met Johnson, who was 53 at the time. For years, Boswell took notes, thinking, I will write a biography of this man. I'd better get down these conversations I'm having with him. Johnson noticed the note-taking and joked to a friend, it's as if someone hired him to spy on me. Finally, after nine years of friendship, Boswell confessed. I am planning to write a biography of you. And then he kept amassing materials. When Johnson died, the material amassing continued. And finally, five years or so later, Boswell was overwhelmed. He had this huge project, his planned life's work, mountains of material, journals packed with anecdotes and facts, and he was stuck. Not only that, he was being mocked a figure of fun in literary London. Here was this lawyer and social butterfly, some might say gadfly, licentious in person, kind of known for his running around and for his worship of Johnson. And where was this great book of his? Ha ha, what a failure. Other biographies of Johnson came out. A bunch of people wrote their recollections of Johnson, who was undeniably... A worthy subject, a subject, a person of interest. He had been the premier man of letters in his day. He'd written the first dictionary of English, among other achievements, and he was well known for his essays and criticism, for his poetry, for his general contributions to literature. And he was odd, larger than life, with an unforgettable appearance and demeanor, slovenly, totally nearsighted, a great wit also full of grumbling opinions, grumbling strong opinions, and great bursts of humor, surprisingly empathetic at times, surprisingly tender, gruff and bluff and hearty and diseased, an outsized figure in a literary metropolis, London, that now looks a bit quaint, a bit villagey, by comparison, with a city today. And Boswell worked and wrote and finally came out with his book, and it was and is a triumph. A biography, maybe, I suppose, a classic. Why not? Call it a biography if you want, or just call it a book, or call it what I was about to call it, which is a book filled with a bunch of prose, the most fun, the most interesting, the hardest to put down prose. If you like literature and you like literary friendships and you are open to spending a bit of time in the 18th century with a couple of somewhat odd dudes, you will like this book, I think. It's hard not to like it, but I don't require any reading of anyone. There are way too many books out there to read. Too many good ones. So I let people choose what they want to read. And Margot, after one of our calls, said, well, what should we do next, Jack? How about Boswell and Johnson? Yes, yes, absolutely. Please do give it a try, Margot. I would like nothing better. And so we decided we would read it together. She would come on and discuss it in bursts, and we will have our first segment today. In this one, she tells us her initial impressions, and we look ahead to what will, uh, what will be in store for us. If you want to read along with us, we're reading the abridged version, the penguin version. Penguin. I read the complete version back when I was 22 and as thirsty for literature and content as a straggler in a desert. The abridged version is good too. The penguin version. Penguin. Oh my, has there ever been a company? If I were a diabetic and they invented insulin and then made it That's about as close as I can get to what those people have meant to me. Thank you, Penguin. So, let's hear our first snippet with Margot. This is Margot's Boswell's Johnson. We're talking about the book Life of Johnson, first published in 1791. The Life's Work of James Boswell. Margot Livesey, after this. (music) Okay, joining me now is friend of the show, Margot Livesey, author of many fine books, including her recent novel, The Boy in the Field, now available in paperback as well as hardcover. Although Margot hails from Scotland, she had until recently been harboring a powerful and abiding secret shame. She had never read one of Scotland's great cultural triumphs, James Boswell's Life of Johnson. She has since confessed her sins to the gods of literature and has been busy rectifying this literary crime against her homeland. Margot Livesey, welcome to the History of Literature.
1: Thank you, Jack. I am (laughs) so happy to be able to atone for my decades of bad behavior.
0: So, Margot, my tongue was firmly in my cheek during that introduction, obviously, but two things I think are true. The first is that Boswell is a great Scottish writer, and the second is that you've never read him before. Is Boswell not part of the standard curriculum in Scotland?
1: Well, I went to a school which I hope is now, is now a dinosaur. I went to Morrison's Academy for Girls in Creef, mm. and we had the most terrible school uniform. But more to the point, we studied no Scottish history mm. and no Scottish literature. Mm. Um, the closest we came to Scottish literature was reading Macbeth. Macbeth, which, right. <laughs> which doesn't exactly count.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Has Boswell fallen off the cultural map, or do you think you just moved away before you got around to
2: it?
1: I think that the last 30, 40 years have seen a real resurgence in interest in Scottish culture, and, mm, in writers mm-hmm. and philosophers and architects and musicians. And, and Boswell is happily amongst them. But I was so advanced in age that I was um, at school before that wave, that wave right. of interest caught on.
0: Right, right. Okay. Well, you and I are going to read this together. And it is one of my favorite books of all time. What has been, and we're reading it slowly, we're going to do it in pieces. What has been your overall impression so far?
1: Well, I will confess that one reason I had stayed away from it was that I, I, I worried it was going to feel admirable but tedious.
2: Mm, mm-hmm. um, but
1: yeah like something that was good for me, but not especially fun. Yes, um, right. as soon as I started reading, I just adored, I adored Boswell's voice, yeah. and I adored what he had to tell me about Johnson. It was really, for me, a page-turner, a right? mm. pure pleasure.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, so I asked you to identify some passages, and for this one, we're going to do this in multiple parts. For this part... I thought we would start with Johnson as an almost mythical creature, a a larger-than-life figure. And we start in part one with what Boswell was able to learn about Johnson's childhood and early efforts in London. What struck you most about the Johnson you were meeting on the page, either the, the child or the young man?
1: I mean, in a way, it's a little like reading a kind of life of a hero, yeah, you know, maybe, right. I don't know, a life right. of, I don't yeah. know Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, say, or yeah. Harriet Tubman. Yeah. Um,
2: Achilles.
1: You know, even <laughs> as a child, he's a kind of mythic, right. larger-than-life figure.
2: right.
0: With his memory, and he's got the his his escapades in school, and he's making a, a vivid impression wherever he goes.
1: Yeah, and his terrible eyesight, and and there's the one passage <laughs> that describes how, for reasons that are quite unclear, his friends carry him to school. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he's perfectly able to walk, but they the three of them sort of carry him as yeah. almost as if he's on a throne,
0: like he's their celebrity.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah,
0: like this is he's the first among us. He's the he's the yes. champion at school, so we will carry him there.
1: Johnson rocks. Yes, completely.
0: <laughs> right. Oh, I loved that. I loved he also is very proud and he's very frugal and he's uh just so devoted to his education. And there's just so many qualities that carry through throughout his life that we see in him when he's young.
1: Yes, yes, he completely did not have a silver spoon in his mouth, or whatever that saying is, at, at, at birth. I mean, he wasn't impoverished, but he did not come from a luxurious background by any means.
0: Yeah, right. There's that passage where his I can't remember exactly the details now, but he he was at when he went to he he went to a college that the others disdained a little bit and so he was trying to go to the lectures of a better lecturer at a different college, but they all kind of looked down on him because of the college he had come from and he had shoes that were <laughs> that were uh, a source of embarrassment and so somebody left him new shoes so he wouldn't be so uh stand out so much when he went, but he refused to put them on because, you know, he was too proud to put them on.
1: And in fact, Boswell comments on quite a number of occasions on his really dreadful dress sense. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And how sort of slovenly he is in his clothing.
0: Right. Was there a particular passage that you pulled out of this first part here that you think exemplifies the qualities of Johnson that you're finding so uh, mythic?
1: One that stood out for me is when he's just a little bit older. He's 19 years old, and he um, has come to Oxford. He's attending Pembroke College in Oxford. And Mm -hmm. Boswell tells us the following story. His tutor, Mr. Jordan, fellow of Pembroke, was not, it seems, a man of such abilities as we should conceive requisite for the instructor of Samuel Johnson, who gave me the following account of him. He was a very worthy man, but a heavy man, and I did not profit much by his instructions. Indeed, I did not attend him much. The first day after I came to college, I waited upon him and then stayed away four. On the sixth, Mr. Jordan asked me why I had not attended. I answered, I'd been sliding in Christchurch meadow. And this, I said, with as much nonchalance as I am now talking to you. I had no notion that I was wrong or irreverent to my tutor. Boswell, that, sir, was great fortitude of mind. Johnson, no, sir, stark insensibility. <laughs> and I I think that's just such a telling anecdote. The, yeah. The way... He doesn't have much respect for his tutor, that he's sort of impervious to what he should be doing in his new life as a student at Oxford, and just sort of wanders off and tells this story. But when Boswell congratulates him, he immediately contradicts him and says, no, no, I was completely wrong.
2: Right, right. and.
1: I love that mixture of pride and humility.
0: Yeah, he's got, on the one hand, a great conception of himself and his gifts, and he suffers no fools. On the other hand, he likes authority and respects it and wants to fit in and wants to be a good churchgoer or be a good, you know, subject to the crown.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, very very much so. And, of course, he never for a number of reasons, he never does fit in. And I think it's during this period that we really understand about the melancholia that afflicts Mm, him throughout his life and how one of of his habitual remedies is to try to sort of walk it off by going on these long walks, maybe sometimes all night, to, to try to overcome
0: it. Yeah. So you mentioned that it came as a bit of a surprise how much you were enjoying it rather than finding it tedious. Was there anything about Johnson in particular that surprised you or was this the figure that you were expecting to encounter when you opened the book?
1: A number of things surprised me. One, I was surprised and delighted that he was married to a much older woman. Mm, mm-hmm. I thought, way to go, Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ahead, ahead of his time in all things. But on a more serious note, I think, insofar as I had a, a, an idea about who had written the dictionary, the great first English dictionary, I had expected it to be a much more orderly person. Yeah, right. And Johnson's life is, is so haphazard and so disorderly and so much much a matter of chance and luck. Um, even how he comes to write the dictionary, it's something he almost just stumbles into with not really very many qualifications. yeah. And then yeah. he somehow taking almost twice as long as he's expected or promised, somehow he pulls it off.
2: Yeah,
0: right. Like, maybe because he's he's always called Dr. Johnson and he's he's known as such a, a strong literary critic, yes. you almost expect him to be like the, I don't know, like a monk. And instead he's more like Falstaff.
1: Yes, <laughs> much <laughs> more like Falstaff. There are several accounts of him wandering around all night with his friends up very late at taverns, talking and Yeah. yeah full of gusto
2: right
0: okay well let's leave things there for now we'll be back as we continue to read here Margot Livesey thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature
1: this was a delight Jack thank you
0: wasn't that great? Next we are, I know I promised you some Yates and I have that in the works, but frankly, I got distracted by all the responses to the Brian Dory's interview and the work that the Theater of War Productions is doing. It's wonderful stuff, invigorating. And it made me hopeful that maybe there's enough humanity bubbling underneath all these political positions and underneath all these factions, fractions, divisions, miscommunications, and misinformation, maybe we can find ourselves again, our core. I want to share one response with you so you can see why I had these thoughts in my mind. This is from dear listener Paul, who is from the Vietnam era. He's older than me by a bit. I am from the generation that came next. We were children when the soldiers were returning home. So I'm not sure I've told this story before, Give you a little background here. My own dad was a little older. He was not quite a baby boomer, born in 1940. So when the draft kicked in, the Vietnam draft, he was a teacher already and he was not drafted. No special favors, no connections to senators or anything like that. He was just on the other side age-wise in his mid-twenties, married, a high school teacher in a small Wisconsin town that frankly most people had never heard of a child on the way, my older sister. My parents had some issues having kids, so they were a little older when they had us, older by the standards of the day. And why am I telling you all this? Because my friends, the kids I went to school with, their dads were in Vietnam. That whole generation came back, returned, and they were back in this small town after the experience. They had gone there as 18, 19, 20-year-olds, had this experience, came back, and they had no support, really, maybe a little here and there, individuals, bright spots, but they had veterans of World War II around, their own dads or uncles and town elders, but those guys were sometimes damaged too, not in a great position to help, and sometimes the sympathy was not strong toward the people coming back. I know there's been a conception, some say misconception, that there were that the rejection of the guys coming back were from the, the hippies, the war protesters. I don't know that that's true. I think there was also some, sometimes not a strong sympathy shown by the older veterans, the guys who maybe had had some experiences, and they the coming back The people coming back were treated with, oh, you were the guys who complained, the guys who lost the war, the disgrace. I know that happened. I saw that happened from some of these older guys. And there were drugs to deal with and life. And then what? We hit a recession. And so I saw, this is in the 70s now, I saw the fathers of my friends dealing with a lot of tough stuff. And their wives had to deal with it too. And nobody had a great handle on what to do. And I can remember being very little. And two little girls my age, even younger, used to come over to our house every morning. And my mom would help watch them and get them ready for school or preschool. And we'd all go to school together. My mom would drive us around, dropping us off at different places. As a child, you don't know. I was probably five or six. You don't really know why things are happening when you're that age, they just are. I remember sitting in the kitchen, my mom making orange juice and cereal and toast for all of us there, my sister and me, and here are these little girls. Their mom had to work or something and couldn't be there. And I learned later, this was the story my dad told me, and we're getting into some dark areas here, and our listener letter is also difficult at points, so if you're not up for it today, you should probably take the rest of this episode off. You can come back next time. I won't hold it against you. I know these are difficult things to hear sometimes. So, but if you are in the mood or you're ready to listen, I'll continue. So what I learned later is that the girl's father, who I didn't know very well, I had seen him. He drove a motorcycle and he had a beard and he always seemed kind of cold to me. The mom was super nice and friendly, but sometimes I'd see her in the living room with my mom crying. And I don't know why they were friends. Maybe my mom was just the friendly face this woman needed at that time. So my dad told me later that the man, the father of these little girls had been in Vietnam and he'd returned and he was having a tough time. the kids didn't know, but the grownups did. It was tough to deal with what he had gone through and he felt alone in this town where people weren't good at dealing with stuff in general. Wisconsin is cold and dark and remote. Parts of it aren't, but a lot of it is. Where I grew up is. You drive on these lonely old roads in the middle of nowhere, dark farms on all sides or trees. At night, the roads lit up with moonlight and the cold stars overhead. And then there's a tavern Drive for miles with nothing, and then there's a tavern. Sometimes it's lively in there. The parking lot is full. Sometimes it's more desolate than that. The electric sign outside, dim, faded. Ham's beer, Michelob, Pabst, old style. And a car or two parked outside, a truck. Inside, a guy sits at the bar. Drinking, deadening, or a woman, same thing, her kids at home, her husband out or in jail or gone. There were no psychiatrists in my town, no therapists. There was brandy and beer and put a little butter on it, ha ha. This was what those boys, those high school kids, left from and returned to. And in the middle, war. Okay, so this friend of my mom's with these two little girls mentioned to my mother that her husband was struggling, was having bad dreams, nightmares, things he couldn't get over, anger issues, he was drinking hard, things were out of his control. She saw that in her husband. He was in a downward spiral and she was worried about him and didn't know what to do. She also had to work, pay the bills. Things were tough. They looked bleak. And my mom told my dad, who said, well, I know he's having problems with the war. I work with someone, a fellow teacher, who might be able to help. He was a veteran too, Vietnam vet. He was someone to maybe talk to. So the next day, my dad went to school And in the teacher's lounge, he asked his coworker if he might be willing to help out. And the guy said, absolutely, I'll give him a call. No one should have to deal with this alone. And in silence, it's too much for anyone. I was there. I've had my own problems. I will call him up and listen. And we can get together if he wants. We'll go fishing. I'll be an ear for him. My dad gave him the number. And after school, the teacher called him up. You know, here I am if you need someone. But he couldn't get in touch with him. It was too late. The man had left. He left his wife and his two little girls. He got on his motorcycle. He didn't tell anyone where he was going. He just had to be somewhere else. He was lost. He was lost and miserable and didn't know what to do, or where to go, or who to be, really, how to live in this world. And none of us in that town really knew how to help, just like the town nearby that didn't know how to help my father's uncle when he returned from World War II. Today, we educate ourselves, we jump on the internet, we read, we we try to find some tips, we try to do what we can, maybe we mess it up but we know how to try. Back then, none of that. And people were in pain. The returning veteran was in pain. His wife, pain. Daughters grew up with a scar of their own. The father who left them and didn't come back. How do we talk about things like this? How do we deal with it? How do we cope? Sometimes we can't or don't. Sometimes a Tim O'Brien comes along and writes a story that at least helps people feel seen. Sometimes the right person at the right time, a teacher, a minister, a neighbor, a friend, sometimes a helper appears and sometimes they help. Other times they can't or they don't show up when it's needed. And it's not just returning veterans who are in this position. It's pain and trauma of all kinds it's living life and coming up short it's the natural disaster that wipes you and everyone you know out the 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 shocking sudden death hunger when you weren't expecting it a parent burying a child we have all of this pain because being in pain is part of life we can only hope it's not too severe or prolonged but if we're human We're going to know it at some point, this pain, and it hurts like hell. And when it really hurts, it crowds out those other things, too. The simple pleasures, the sunsets, the stars. We can't see the stars if we're in the dark tavern, numbing the pain and hoping for the world to stop spinning. We can't hear the laughter on the playground if the sky is screaming. So this is why our last guest, Brian Dorries, was so interesting and why his theater company has been so powerful in its reach. There's a power here. I love literature, but you know how conflicted I am about it. I feel like about its state in the world. I feel like it's dying. I felt that way when I started this thing, and I still have my doubts. Not dead, I never said that, but dying. And my goodness... Please do not email me and say that you love reading so you don't get it. I know you do. Some of us do. But do your kids, do your grandkids, will your great-grandchildren, will they read novels? Do you think? Will they read poetry? How often? When it's assigned in school, will it be part of our culture? Will it be big enough to matter to anyone? Or will it just be more like a hobby? Will it just dwindle? And if so, what will we lose? And what, if anything, will replace it? So, let's hear from our listener. This is dear listener Paul, who has been a solid supporter of the show, but I never knew this part. Hadn't shared this with me before. Our last episode inspired him to write me the following letter. Jack. Thanks so much for your podcast about the theater of war. I am indebted to Doris for alerting me to the personal impact of Sophocles a few years ago that explained as well as anything the source of my rages. After coming home to the farm after Vietnam, I destroyed livestock and equipment like Ajax. I obviously have not taken the final step of suicide but have come within seconds of doing so. Having read everything that Hemingway has published, I obtained a bespoke shotgun for the last step. I went to London like Hemingway, but went with a Holland and Holland over under, rather than the boss side by side that Hemingway used. Every time I visit the Vietnam Memorial Wall, I do feel some sorrow, as one of my men in the unit I commanded is on the wall as well as my best high school friend and others that I knew. My overall emotion after visiting has been a sensation of rage. Before COVID, the Veterans for Peace, Vietnam Full Disclosure Group, used to collect letters addressed to the wall and place them at the wall on Memorial Day. My last letter was in 2020 and is below. It illustrates the awareness I gained from Sophocles and he includes the letter. It's entitled, After I Visit the Wall. About 2,500 years ago, Sophocles wrote the tragedy Ajax to help the soldiers that he fought with in the war between Athens and Sparta to emotionally come to grips with their war experiences. Ajax feels betrayed because he was denied receiving the armor of his cousin and friend Achilles, as was the custom. Ajax went home, and destroyed livestock and other parts of his home. He took his son to the top of a hill, and killed himself. After I visit the wall, and mourn the loss of everyone whose name is inscribed, like Ajax, I get enraged, because I also am denied receiving the armor of my fallen companions, as was done in ancient Greece. There are no arms to pass on, because the war was not just. In Henry IV, Shakespeare writes, The arms are fair when the intent of bearing them is just. In Henry V, Shakespeare writes, But if the cause be not good, the king himself hath a heavy reckoning to make. This lack of just cause, produced arms to be passed on, was felt when I opened the screen door to knock on the door of a small house in northern Massachusetts, to tell the parents that their only son had been killed. I felt naked and fully received every blow that the mother gave me. I still feel them today, especially when I visit the wall. I am sorely tempted to lie to myself that the cause was just. Like Ajax, Hemingway also killed himself. In Farewell to Arms, Hemingway wrote... I was always embarrassed by the words sacred, glorious, and sacrifice. I had seen nothing sacred, and the things were glorious, had no glory, and the sacrifices were like stockyards at Chicago, if nothing was done to the meat except to bury it. Unless I lie to myself, I will always be denied receiving the fair arms that Shakespeare wrote about. Paul, Vietnam, 70. 71. Thanks for all you do, Jack, to help all of us deal with life. It's the end of the email. I have chills. I asked Paul if I could share this letter with you, and he said yes, of course. Please use it however you like. It's all I can do to pass it along. I don't know how to improve upon it or even comment really. It's beautiful. It's powerful. I feel honored to have been part of the conversation and I wish Paul all the best, just as I wish all of you the best. A lot of people have come to the podcast for a lot of different reasons. One of those reasons is pain. And one of their responses is gratitude. Gratitude toward me, but really gratitude toward literature. I don't know if literature is dying, but I can tell you one thing. If it is dying, it's a shame that it is. We are better with literature. We are better from it. We are better. Period. <laughs> That will do it for today. My thanks to dear listener Paul for sharing that with me and to Margot Livesey, our friend and fellow Boswellian now, or is it a Johnsonian? I guess it's a Boswell and johnsonian I think the sum there is definitely greater than the parts. Speaking of parts that are not that great, I'm Jack Wilson. A bunch of spare parts fused together by a lazy and indifferent god then kicked to the curb like the Homer Simpson robot, and here I sit in my chair, talking away. My goodness. Well, and guess what, people? More to come. (laughs) We should have some John Milton coming up soon, along with trips to India and China. We'll have more Boswell, and we will get to Australia, I promise. And there's a big Sylvia Plath feast on the horizon. Plath, Hughes, and the other woman who hardly ever gets talked about except for one thing, but she's deeper than that. And we have a look at fashion in literature and a look at top literary terms. That's Mike Palindrome for you fans of his. He will come by for a good two-parter. So there is a lot in the works. Thomas Pynchon is on the calendar. Please do subscribe and holler out the window at your neighbors that they should subscribe to. And then close your window and wait for the sirens. It will be the paddy wagon, your final destiny. You'll get in and the driver will take you to the room all in white. It will feel like a dream and they'll tell you the doctor is in. Only it won't be a doctor. It will be a podcast host, yours truly. And you'll say, but I thought literature was dying. And the host will say, it's not dying. And you'll say, oh, whew. And he'll say, because it's dead and he'll cackle with laughter, and then you'll wake up in a cold sweat, and you'll grab your phone and look at the history of literature and think, should I subscribe or not? Should I subscribe or not? As the shadows creep across the wall, and your skin feels like ice, and somewhere Satan flaps his wings, and I'm in a different circle, unable to help. Or, none of that will happen. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening.